Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 117 on the flip side. Hello and welcome to episode 117 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Paneris, and Happy New Year! Happy 2021! I hope everyone got some sort of rest over the holidays. I hope that as we head into this new year, you're in good health and I can provide a halfway decent distraction for here for the next hour or so. I'm turning my attention once again to music this time around with an episode that is a continuation of the ongoing narrative I've had about my history with rock and pop music. The most recent in this informal series, because it really is just something I keep returning to as opposed to an actual origin story miniseries, was taped off the radio from last September. And in that one, I talked about having my boombox with a blank cassette tape in it and recording random songs. For this one, we're fast-forwarding by a couple of years to after my friends and I first started getting CD players and also started making our own money through after-school and summer jobs, which meant that we could spend money on CDs and not rely on just, like, getting them for Christmas and our birthdays and stuff. Of course, CDs were expensive, at least to my teenage brain, so it's not like I was buying a ton of them at once. Years ago, I talked about how I jump-started my CD collection with a Columbia House membership after my 15th birthday. I would sometimes convince my parents to let me order something out of their catalog, especially if I had lawn mowing money to spend or birthday money to spend, but for the most part, I was stuck sifting through the CD racks at our local record stores. That is, if I had money left over from buying all the comics I was buying. But whereas there were only a couple of accessible comic book options in or near my hometown on the south shore of Long Island, there were several accessible record store options. While the Kmart-esque TSS, which had an outstanding record and cassette department back in the 80s, was gone by the early 90s, having been replaced with a Kmart, that particular shopping center was built out to include a Borders and a Nobody Beats the Whiz. The latter, for those who aren't from the Northeast, was pretty much like a Best Buy. It had electronics and all sorts of TVs and stereos and things, but it also had a CD department, and the CDs at that store ranged around $9.99 to $14.99. You know, that's the same price point Best Buy used to offer back when they were a place you could get a bunch of CDs. Borders was a good three to five bucks more expensive per CD, but they also tended to have a deeper uh, selection. We also had a record world in the Sunvet Mall that eventually became the wall and then an FYE before closing down. And 
all the other malls around us had at least Sam Goody. Plus, in a shopping center in Oakdale, two towns over, there was an independent record store named Middle Earth Records. It's a bit of a laundry list of places I gave you, I know, but it's just to say that I wasn't hurting for options if I was looking for a particular album by a particular band. Whereas with comics, I was pretty much shit out of luck if one or two stores in the area didn't have a back issue and I didn't feel like paying mile-high comics prices, I rarely actually struck out on the CD front. Of course, these days, striking out when it comes to music is incredibly rare. Most artists' libraries are available on a number of streaming services, so if there's something that's really hard to find, it's a really deep cut. I'm picturing record collectors standing at a garage sale holding up the staff of Ra to find some rare Rolling Stones 45, even though it's probably not that dramatic when they go looking for these things that they can't find on, like, Pandora or Spotify. Anyway... That's actually what this episode is about. The rare tracks that weren't on albums so that you could only find on B-sides. These were songs that, as we got to know a band's history, were ones that were played in concert, but we wanted studio versions, or were rumored to exist somewhere, perhaps on an import version of a single. It was our music fan version of doing a deep back issue bin dive. And as you'll see, actually connects quite a bit to how I became more of a music fan beyond just taping songs off the radio. After all, Amanda and I still own about 750 to 800 CDs between the two of us, and at one point I had shoeboxes full of cassette tapes, and my hard drive has easily a couple of hundred gigabytes of songs. And look, my collection can best be described as eclectic, which is probably a Nice way of putting it the way my one of my roommates in college described it, which was shitty. But it's not like I'm... Well, it's not like I'm cool. So this will be an autobiographical look at various rare tracks that come courtesy of B-sides and imports. And I'll start talking about it right after this. For years, the Fire & Water Podcast Network has found its joy talking about comics. From Aquaman and Firestorm to Batman and Plastic Man. From giant treasuries to pocket-sized digests. From massive miniseries events to singular one-shot adventures. From romance to horror to whatever the hell Ohatmu or not is. In the last year, they've begun to carve a path through their favorite television shows, such as MASH, Cheers, and Justice League Unlimited, and there's no sign of them stopping. What medium will fire and water conquer next? Introducing Fire and Water Records, the music anthology podcast from the Fire and Water Network. Find your joy in all new ways as members of the Fire and Water Network and their friends discuss favorite songs, albums, concerts, and artists. 
Hang on, I've been doing a music show for two years. Featuring Record Revolution. Join the Brothers Daily as we catalog the essential years that shaped popular music and our own lives. A very daily Christmas. An annual celebration of our favorite holiday tracks. Plus, all new episodes of Zoom for Sam. The show in which I share my joy of Samantha Fox by spotlighting a single single every single episode. And Pod Dylan. No, not Pod Dylan. We discussed this. That's staying on its own feed. Not Pod Dylan, but everything else I said. Plus, so much more. There's even a chance David Ace Gutierrez will show up. Which brings us back to Fastball, which is really one of the most interesting American bands in the world today. When you think about the number of side projects and solo projects associated with the band, it actually almost out. Fire and Water Records, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You know, as much of a Springsteen fan as I am, and there are a couple of Bruce songs in this episode, I can't attest to Murder Incorporated being one of those rarities that I own because I didn't hear it until it was released on the Greatest Hits album in about 95, 96. And at the time, I actually didn't know that it or uh, This Hard Land, which was another track on the album, was a lost track. It was recorded for the Born in the USA sessions, but left off the album. And those types of songs are some that uh, are going to be included here as well, especially since they tended to be the ones that showed up at random at shows or were on copies of copies of copies of bootlegs from like 1979, you know? I don't want to give a rigid definition for the type of song that I've grabbed for this list either, because by the time I was a teenager, the multiple formats and avenues to find music made the definition of a rarity fluid. I will say, though, that because... This was more or less before the internet and then leaning into the early days of music sharing on the internet. Learning about bands' rarities was done through like occasional magazine articles or really word of mouth. So many of my friends and I had older siblings or cousins who either introduced us to a particular band or saw our interest and then guided us further down that rabbit hole. Now, as for the story of the B-side... It actually has existed for an incredibly long time. I went for an article or some sort of post somewhere that detailed how B-sides came to exist, you know, the way we knew them. And surprisingly, or really not surprisingly, depending on your point of view, Wikipedia has a really extensive page on A-sides and B-sides. And they have existed essentially since 1908. That's the year Columbia Records created the original discs that eventually became what we know now as records. The 33, in its current format, 
would be introduced in 1948. And then in 1949, it was RCA who would develop the 45, which is when the definition of the B-side would be solidified because it was the most important format. Like I said, Wikipedia has a really lengthy entry that's pretty detailed and well-researched, even getting into how A-sides and B-sides differed. To sum up, that difference developed because of disc jockeys. Throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the A-side of a record became the preferable side for a radio station to play a single, and the B-side became the place where bands would put alternate versions of songs, other songs off of the same album, live recordings, covers, or extra tracks that just didn't make the album. This continued more or less through the 1980s as the 45 morphed into the single, and that's where I actually heard my first ever B-side, which was The House of Blue Light by Billy Joel. This was the B-side to the single for We Didn't Start the Fire, and that was the single I bought in the fall of 1989 at Record World in the Sunvent Mall with the prize money I'd gotten for winning funniest costume at our junior high's Halloween dance. Uh, my friend and I went as Hans and Franz from Saturday Night Live. I went into my history with We Didn't Start the Fire on the blog back in December of 2019. The House of Blue Light, as the B-side, is not one I find significant, aside from the fact that it was the first B-side I owned. I think I've actually only listened to it a handful of times, because while it's a decent song, it's an effort at some bluesy song about a whorehouse that doesn't really land. In fact, there aren't very many Billy Joel B-sides out there that I've ever found to be very memorable. I do own the My Lives box set that was released in 2005, and it's a pretty good box set, even if it's mostly alternate takes, live versions, and a lot of in-concert covers. He's actually not a huge fan of that box set, saying in a 2018 interview that it was more or less compiled without his permission by the record company, which has been churning out compilations of his music for a couple of decades and was more or less full of scraps that were never meant to be seen. I can see that. A lot of what I've listened to off of it sounds like rough tracks that were more or less curiosities. I do like a few of them, though. I don't think that House of Blue Light registered as a B-side when I bought We Didn't Start the Fire in 89, because with the exception of a few cassettes that would I would get for my birthday or Christmas, I wasn't really that into music at the time. And even though singles would last throughout the decade of the 90s, I think this story really begins when I firmly entered the CD era, which actually was the beginning of the end of the B-side as it was known via the 45 and the K-single. 
Because you don't flip over a disc. You just go on to the next track. CDs and cassettes, to a lesser extent, afforded more space for a band to put tracks on an album, which is why you have albums from the 90s that have 14 or 15 songs on them as opposed to some albums from the 70s that have fewer than 10. And some of the B-sides I first heard were found on the cassette or CD versions of older albums because record companies would remaster and reissue them, using the extra available space to drop bonus tracks as a way to entice you to perhaps buy another copy of something you already owned. Or in my case, do a deeper dive when you were discovering a band, like I did with Queen. I'm not going to get too deep into my history with Queen right now because I have planned a two-parter about the band for later this year, but I can't do this episode without mentioning that when I first started buying Queen's albums on cassette and then later CD, they were the Hollywood Records reissues that were done in 1991, and those reissues came with bonus tracks at the end. In a number of cases, they were remixes or alternate versions of some of their greatest hits. My first Queen album, which was News of the World had a Rick Rubin mix of We Will Rock You, but there were also unreleased or B-side tracks. The one I just played part of, I Go Crazy, a Brian May written track that was the B-side to Radio Gaga and was included on the reissue of 1984's The Works. That's one of the tapes I practically wore out after I got it my freshman or sophomore year of high school, and I Go Crazy had a harder rock sound that, in re-listening to it for the first time in years, has a little bit of Stone Cold Crazy and a little bit of, believe it or not, ACDC. I was listening to a lot of Guns N' Roses at the time, so something that this fast was right up my alley. Plus, they referenced themselves in a song which is kind of cheeky. Speaking of which... See what a fool I've been off of the Queen 2 CD release? Well, not hard rock per se is more bluesy. This was also written by May, and according to the song's Wikipedia page, dates back to his previous band, Smile. It was the B-side to the Seven Seas of Rye, which closes Queen 2. Whenever I hear it, I actually think of Robert Plant. 
May wrote this in the late 60s and was inspired by a blues song called That's How I Feel by Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. However, according to May, he actually didn't know what the song was for years because it was a riff he'd heard off of a TV program. He remembered it and he incorporated it into See What a Fool I've Been, which was recorded in 1971 during the Queen 2 sessions. It was a fan in 2004 who did the detective work and got in touch with May, who then posted on his blog that he was working to track down the estates of the artists to work out royalty issues. It's pretty cool. Queen was the first band I was truly interested in that had a history I wanted to learn more about. And those bonus tracks and CD releases were a motivation beyond completism for me to buy an album. I had two greatest hits compilations, so I didn't need singles. Whenever I looked at an album in the record store, I would judge it by not only by what singles were on it, but what bonus tracks I would be finding. And in some cases, like A Kind of Magic, the bonus track would get as much, if not more, play than any of the others. Now, this is an alternate version of a song as opposed to a unique song, but Forever, which is the piano version of Who Wants to Live Forever, remains one of my favorite instrumental tracks of all time. Yes, that has everything to do with the fact that Highlander is an incredible movie and also that I played the piano for so many years. Although, funny enough, I don't think I ever actually figured out how to play Who Wants to Live Forever. I can't remember why, except to say that in the late 90s, when I would print out guitar tabs from the internet and try to convert them to play on the piano, which was sometimes successful and often not successful at all, it never occurred to me to look this one up. Anyway, whereas Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen were always, well, always there, and I'll get to the boss later on, Queen was the first band I really took a deep dive into, and it was one that was uniquely mine among my group of friends. This wound up being the source of grief from time to time, because among my friends, if it wasn't like really heavy metal, it wasn't music. And the king of all those metal bands, at least according to them during high school, was, of course, Metallica.
like Queen, Metallica is another band I probably could do an entire episode, and whether or not I will is kind of up in the air, because my relationship with the band's music and really metal as a genre is complicated. The band, though, was required listening for much of high school, and I was friends with a guy who kind of asserted his alpha-ness by showing off how much of a Metallica fan he was, and even acting as if you were kind of shit if you didn't know enough about the band or have enough of the band's music. And seeing that I had completely shit self-esteem as a teenager, it didn't occur to me that I didn't need to kiss his ass with regards to musical tastes. Anyway, Metallica is still kind of important, at least autobiographically, when it comes to my musical tastes, and this is one of the only times in this list where I'm going to include a cover song, because the B-sides and rarities that I own from the band were mostly cover songs. Granted, they were covers of obscure 1970s metal tracks, but I can't think of any original Metallica B-side that I listened to or looked for back in the day. The ones I remember were the ones my friend found by diving into what Middle Earth Records referred to as the Imports section. They had one of these in Borders as well. The Borders section was legitimately like stocked with import versions of albums and singles. But while Middle Earth had those, they also used the Imports label to sell bootleg concert CDs. Not sure that was entirely legal. Then again, from what I remember, I believe that the store met its end when the owner was arrested for selling pot out of the back, or at least that was the rumor I heard. I wouldn't be surprised. Anyway, three songs come to mind when I think of tracks from the various Metallica imports that my friend bought over the years. One is Killing Time, a cover of a song by the Irish group Sweet Savage that he had on an import B-side compilation that was either an international issue of the various Garage Days EPs or was something that someone had assembled. Unfortunately, my memory of this is kind of blurry because he basically had a whole section of his CD collection with Metallica bootlegs and imports. I do know that I first heard the band's cover of The Misfits' Last Caress on the live shit Binge and Purge box set, which was the crazy expensive one that came out in 1994, and he had, of course. Man, he lorded that over anyone and everyone. Anyway, that's a song whose tune I really, really like, but whose lyrics, which are about infanticide and rape, make it nearly as unlistenable as an edgy, dark, tits-out 90s comic is unreadable. The same can be said, kind of, for So What, which is the B-side to Enter Sandman, and a cover of a song by British punk band Anti-Nowhere League. It's not as offensive in a sense, but it is, but it's, it's angry punk hardcore stuff that perfectly fit teenage aggro vibes and was great to rollerblade to, I will tell you, in 1993, 4, and 5 or whatever. But listening to it now does not really connect with me, not even on an I need something really kicked up so that I can work out sort of level. What I played for you, though, was Breadfan a cover of the 1973 song by the group Budgie that was a B-side from the Injustice for All album and was a touring standard of theirs. We all first heard this song via that live shit box set because it was one of the songs on the concert VHS tapes that was included, but a recording of it was hard to come by, and while my friend did score a few live versions of varying quality from bootlegs, none of us could find a studio version of the song. Then he came upon the Japanese import version of the single for one. And this was like his holy grail moment. I remember that he was generous enough to tape some songs for me so that I could have a copy of the song. So I guess that was nice. 
funny enough, until I uh, was putting this episode together, I hadn't listened to the song in years. It still holds up to me. It's a really, really good song. It's a piece of heavy metal that I still will still listen to if I feel like listening to some metal. It's on the faster side, which is actually the stuff from Metallica that I tend to prefer. Because if you were asked me to throw, if you were to ask me to throw on something from the band, it would probably be from the Cliff Burton era, "Hit the Lights," "Whiplash," "Master of Puppets." This fits right in with that. Now, I would later acquire this song on CD for myself when I brought Garage Inc., the B-sides and covers compilation that came out in 1998. This would wind up being the last Metallica album that I would ever own. And I remember the reason I bought it was because of the presence of all of the songs I had buried on this mixtape and that mixtape. So this was like somewhere to have it all in one place. And that brings up another source of B-sides, which is the B-side compilation album. This will be something that'll pop up quite a bit in this list because a number of the songs that I have come from such albums. And the first one that I ever owned was a Nine Inch Nails EP called Fixed. Now, I never looked the part of someone who listened to industrial metal, alternative, or whatever category early 1990s Nine Inch Nails ended up fitting into. In fact, I was a prime candidate for being told to name three songs of theirs that weren't head like a hole or wish if a real fan ever approached me. Which, as an aside, is why I think it's total bullshit that women are put through that on a regular basis. I mean, when you think of it, what do you actually have to gain by challenge a woman, by challenging a woman to prove her fan credentials when you might not do that with guys? Uh, maybe you would. I don't know. But some of us just like something and like talking about it. I mean, I don't think I'm the fucking Encyclopedia Britannica guy. Remember me? I'm the kid that had a report due on space. Then I got the new Encyclopedia Britannica. He had a report due on space, and then he got the new Encyclopedia... I think I made that abundantly clear. In conclusion... Real fans, shut the fuck up. Anyway, Fix was a remixes albums of songs from the 1991 album Broken. That was an album that I talked about on my Columbia House episode because it was one of my Columbia House 13. It's uh, one of two remix APs that I own, the other being Further Down the Spiral that accompanied the Downward Spiral. I've also got a few singles from the songs that were released off of uh, Pretty Hate Machine and never actually bought anything after the Downward Spiral era. In fact, I think I've only listened to The Downward Spiral and then its accompanying remix album further down all the way through maybe once. It's not that I didn't like these albums, but they came out at a time when my tastes were changing. For example, I started listening to a lot more punk like Green Day and The Clash. So as good as I thought Nine Inch Nails was, I just wasn't into it as much as I had been when Broken came out a few years earlier. Fixed is another story. Broken, like I said, it was in regular rotation on my CD player, and by the time I uh, had the money to go buy it at Borders, Fixed was an EP that I, you know, that I was kind of coveting. Uh, 
you know, I'd seen it a number of times, so I'm flipping through those racks, um, the import racks. So at one point, I had the money. I decided I wanted it. For the life of me, I don't know if I wanted it because I liked Broken and Pretty Hate Machine or because I knew that none of my friends had it. I mean, that way I would seem cool. I mean, after all, one of the tracks was named Fistfuck. I was such a tool as a teenager. What I played for you here was an excerpt from the song Gave Up. Uh, that's the track that opens the album. It's a remix that I find better than the original track. There's nothing wrong with the version on Broken. It's just that the frenetic driving energy of this remix is something that, well, once it gets going, it just grabs a hold of you and kind of makes you want to run face first into something like a wall. It's an oddly good thing, by the way. Not running face first into a wall, like the feeling of wanting to run face first into a wall. Trust me, you'll understand when you feel it. But I should give a mention to the fact that there's also an eight-minute version of Wish on this CD. And while it's good, I find the original version of that song to be better. Then again, Wish is in my top three songs by Nine Inch Nails, with Something I Can Never Have and Sin from Pretty Hate Machine being the other two. Had like a hole that's like in the top five. It's like number four or five. And uh, Hurt is somewhere up there already as well. So... Fix was a remixes compilation. Um, it's not necessarily a B-Sides collection, though. My first true B-Sides CD was uh, by Smashing Pumpkins. It was Pisces Iscariot. got the CD by accident. Um, I had asked for a Smashing Pumpkins CD for Christmas one year, not knowing that I was looking for Siamese Dream because today, and especially Disarm, were being um, played on the radio quite a bit at the time. So I just said, can I get a Smashing Pumpkins CD? Uh, thinking that was the only one out because it was the only one I'd really heard of or that would be in the front or whatever. Anyway, I wound up with this. It's not bad. Um, it's been a while since I've listened to the whole thing through, and my favorite track right off the bat was their cover of Landslide by Fleetwood Mac. Now, I didn't realize that that was a cover until a f at least a few years later, but um, th there's a whole episode I want to do about covers at some point, so I'll put that one aside too. And I'm going to talk about what I just played, which is La Dali Vita. This song is one that I had listened to when I first got the album in high school, but I'd forgotten about until my junior year of college when one of my roommates, who was a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan, would play it on his guitar from time to time. And I have to say here that he was one of the guys at a dorm room with a guitar who actually enjoyed playing the guitar and didn't seem to do it just so that he could play Crash Into Me for some freshman girl at one in the morning because he knew it would get him laid. Man, there were a lot of guys like that in college. 
and so many of them were complete tools, and they hooked up with so many girls. All right, maybe I'm just musically jealous because I play piano and you can't exactly haul a Steinway up four flights of dorm stairs at three in the morning like you can do a guitar. But really, what it, was it about those sensitive ponytail guys who knew like one Dave Matthews song? Seriously. Ladali Vito was one of his favorites, and it's one that I've come back to over the years because it's it's a pumpkin song that's well, it's really chill. It reminds me a little bit of Drown, which is the song off the single soundtrack. It's another one of my favorite Smashing Pumpkins songs. And whereas some of their other slow tempo songs tend to be more of the earnest type, this one just kind of floats along and ironically enough would be a great one of the morning dorm room song, especially after a night of serious chemical imbibement. Nowadays, since I'm not pounding cans of Ice House in the middle of beer pong games, I put it on a playlist that is meant for a long stretch of background noise. And I realize that is like the most middle-aged thing I can do, but it still makes the song quality in my ears. The Pumpkins were a group I dipped in and out of through the 90s, although I never did buy anything beyond Pisces Iscariot. At various times, one or more of my college roommates owned Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, and Amanda owned that, so I never actually had to buy that album, even though I listened to it several times over. I started tuning them out around the time they did that song for the Batman and Robin soundtrack, and uh, the album that came after it just wasn't interesting to me. Then again, 97, 98 was around the time I'd started listening to Ska, which is why I own more than a few Mighty Mighty Boss Tones albums, as well as CDs by Save Ferris, Real Big Fish, and the Dropkick Murphys. Look, we all experiment in college, and very often when you experiment in college, mistakes get made, and I guess this is me owning that mistake. Maybe? But back to the Pumpkins, they were a group I liked. They were not top tier when it came to 90s alternative music uh, that was popular, um, at least to me. You know, people when I went to high school would love them. And, and you know, and I, I like I said, I like them. But when it came to the stuff that I was listening to from the alternative, and I'm, I'm using that label because that's the label we, we had back then. When it came to that, uh, the top two spots were Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam for me with the latter of the two groups being the artist behind this next song, a B-side that's one of their most famous and one of my favorite songs of theirs, as well as the entire decade of the 90s. Of course, it's Yellow Leadbetter. Sit on 
Now, this is a song that was a pretty well-known Pearl Jam B-side for years, especially since it actually charted on the mainstream rock tracks in the early 90s. However, it was kind of a pain in the ass to come by because it was only available on the Jeremy single, a CD single that truly was an import and wasn't released domestically until 1995. But my uncle got it for me for Christmas in 92 or 93, and the song, and the other B-side on the single, Footsteps, made its way into my regular rotation of tracks from 10 and verses for the longest time after that. In fact, I'm pretty sure that I put it on more than one mixtape during the 90s, and it's another that Dennis used to play all the time in college, even if I don't think any of us knew what the actual lyrics to the song were. Then again... I don't even know if Eddie Vedder knows what the lyrics to Yellow Bet Better are. It's really hard to describe the song, to be honest, as it's one that just kind of speaks for itself. It's just sad and gorgeous in a way that few songs can be on continued listens. It's heartfelt, which is a sentiment in music that I've always gravitated toward, probably more than the number of guys I hung out with over the years. I have a sentimental streak that even years of becoming more and more jaded and cynical hasn't completely erased. So when Eddie Vedder turns to Mike McCready and says, make me cry, and then McCready launches into the guitar solo, gets me. Make me cry. Really, to this day, I just hear that and I'm like, damn. My friends from high school would probably cry blasphemy at this, but I'd listen to this any time over tracks of the various Metallica imports they were scrounging up at Middle Earth Records in the early 1990s. Now, another sentimental favorite of mine that was included on a B-side and rarities compilation is the studio version of Sarah McLaughlin's I Will Remember You, but that didn't make this list because technically it was an A-side, having been released in 1995 from the soundtrack to the movie The Brothers McMullen. You know, I remember trying to watch that movie at one point, but I don't think I ever actually got through the whole thing. Anyway, this was a song that got played on the radio and that I would hear on a college opera acapella group sing from time to time it also got re-released in a sense as the b-side to her single adia when surfacing came out in 97 so i actually had it as a b-side cassette single for years before finally getting on that rarities b-sides and other stuff collection when i finally bought it and i also want to at least mention her cd the freedom sessions which is a collection of stripped down alternate takes from fumbling towards ecstasy and my favorite song on there is actually a cover of a Tom Waits song called Old 55. Now, I didn't mention in a prior episode, uh, th there's a reason I bring up Sarah McLaughlin, because she, she's somebody I mentioned that I didn't know about until college. Um, and that's partly because, you know, 
I didn't have access to MTV or VH1. I really didn't ever hear her songs on the radio. I was too focused on what my friends were listening to, you know, being a total loser. So, all right, I should cut myself a little bit of slack here because I think that at one point or another, we do tend to pick up things that our friends are listening to, especially in settings like high school and colleges, because, you know, you're always hanging out at your friends' places and you're looking through their CD collection or you and your roommates have... Uh, CD collections, and you're always borrowing shit from everybody else. And, you know, when you hit college, eventually, especially in the 90s, everybody seems to listen to the same three Grateful Dead CDs, and then, then they graduate to Fish. I have a principle that every band has at least one good song, except for maybe Nickelback. And Fish definitely placed that rule. Susie Greenberg, which is what I played an excerpt from here, also qualifies as a B-side or a rarity because it's never actually been recorded on a studio album, at least as far as I can tell. My roommate Drew had a ton of Fish CDs, both studio, live, and this song got played in a fairly steady rotation. It's, well... It's the definition of groovy, man, you know? It's definitely would have been a call the jam band song in the in the mid nineteen nineties. You want to talk about another label that it's like, where did you come up with these things? But really, jam band. Um but whereas some of their songs, at least to me, didn't seem to have anything behind them and were trippy time filler for when you were passing around a bong at midnight, like so many live dead tracks I was forced to endure for four years at Loyola. This actually has energy. I had this on a room uh, mixtape for years, and when I got rid of all of my tapes, I lost it. So rediscovering it via Spotify was kind of cool. Truth be told, it's not a song I'd probably listen to very often, and Fish is a band I don't listen to at all. I mean, I don't even own a single one of their albums. But I put it here because it's kind of an artifactor, historical marker, in a way. And there was a lot of, well, I don't want to say bad or even strange music that I listened to in college. I mean, it was the late, it was the mid to late nineties. So there was a lot of picking and choosing of various bands and a lot of stuff had its moment. And, um, there were at least a few bands I remember enjoying that I've really haven't thought very much of in the last 10 or 20 years. Like, I remember my friend Rusty really liking a band called The Ocean Blue. 
and I think I listened to a little bit of their stuff here and there, which I I enjoyed when he was playing it. I have a God Street Wine CD. Um, I'm pretty sure that came because it was a review copy that we got for the college paper. And uh, The Beautiful South was another band. I have one of their CDs. But they opened for somebody I saw. It was either Hootie and the Blowfish or it was Bare Naked Ladies or somebody. And I'll mention BNL in a minute. But I do want to bring up another group that was kind of randomly popular and then just faded away after they broke up. But the lead singer sticks around and pops up every once in a while. And that is Ben Folds 5. All right. I never forgot about Ben's Folds 5. I don't think anybody really did. And after all, between their late 90s success and Ben Folds' own solo Rock in the Suburbs album, I actually have quite a bit of their music in my collection. But those CDs are still sitting in the mega book holder I put them in years ago, and I don't think I've played what's on my iPod in years, even if it probably still holds up more than a lot of things from that same era. Ben Folds 5 hit it big in 1997 with their album Whatever and Ever Amen, especially with the hit Brick. In early early 1998, they released Naked Baby Photos, which was a combination live album and unreleased songs compilation. The first track is one of my favorite Ben Folds 5 songs, and it's called Eddie Walker. Won't you smile, you look so shocked Put the name tag on your smock We've come to see you, Eddie Walker. We may pack a little tight. The girl up front says, it's all right. And look, there's more of us still getting off the bus. We wish you'd come back home with us. Eddie Walker, this is your This song is a story about Ben Folds going to visit his friend who has serious mental health problems and is in a, he's either in a psychiatric ward or a halfway house. Um, accounts from fans differ on a specific place, but they all seem to include the same premise. And uh, what they do is they spend their time looking through old photo albums and talking. And, and, and the tone that Ben Folds takes is like reassuring that it'll be okay. And according to the fan accounts that I, I saw on various message boards or comment threads, apparently Eddie Walker himself is actually, he's okay nowadays. Or he got better. But just like Brick, Eddie Walker is an incredibly sad song, although they're a little more aggressive with the piano part, and it has this solo portion that is so full of emotion. I think it's one of my favorite piano solos ever. In prep for this podcast episode, I re-listened to Eddie Walker for the first time in actually a really long time, and I was really happy to hear that it holds up incredibly well. That, by the way, is another way of saying I did air keyboards in my kitchen. 
But hearing this does make me want to dig out my Ben Folds 5 and Ben Folds solo CDs and add more songs to my iPod, so that can't be too much of a bad thing, right? Now, beyond the CDs I listened to, I didn't go see Ben Folds in concert, nor did I fall further down that particular rabbit hole. But I can't say the same for the Bare Naked Ladies, a band that I first heard when the old apartment was getting airplay on WHFS during my sophomore year. I owned Born on a Pirate Ship and listened to that pretty regularly before Stunt came out in 1998, and one week got played all the time. My listening to them before Stunt has nothing to do with this song, except to say that I used to personally feel smug when my friends in college started getting into the band in 98-99 because I'd already been listening to them. Again, I was not cool. I still am not. Anyway, this song, Long Way Back Home, actually is on Stunt, and it's an example of another aspect of the CD era, which was the bonus track. Now, I know that there were hidden tracks on albums years before CDs. If I recall correctly, a couple of hidden tracks on Beatles albums contributed to the Paul is Dead urban legend. But the CD era turned all of that into a weird art form, because instead of just an extra track that you noticed existed beyond the count of the album cover, some of them were placed after several minutes of silence on the last song on the album, or as a high-numbered track. Nine Inch Nails Broken had two bonus tracks that were 98 and 99 on the version I own, and Green Day's Dookie had the Ode to Masturbation called All By Myself at this very end of that disc. Stunt had two hidden tracks on the limited edition pressing of that CD, which my sister owned, whereas I had the regular pressing of the CD and that didn't, and I had no idea what the difference is between the two of them. I didn't realize that there was a limited edition or or a regular pressing, because I don't think it was labeled that way. Anyway, there were two tracks, like I said, and, and the first one was kind of a novelty type of song called She's On Time, which is about a guy celebrating the fact that his girlfriend got her period, and Long Way Back Home, which is a sentimental favorite of mine. Long way back here again 
It's funny how much this sounds like a country song, especially since I'm not really a fan of country. Then again, I'm not really a fan of like pop country shit, you know, like the stuff that my students used to listen to at the Redneck Dangerous Minds that was my former place of employment. The song itself is about missing your girlfriend because the two of you were in a long-distance relationship. And I think that has everything to do with why I liked it in 1998. Because I was in a long-distance relationship. Shit, I probably could put a whole mix of songs that are about long-distance relationships and missing someone. And this one is extra tough because it's in a way about not knowing what to do when you're actually with that person because your default setting is being apart. Of course, as I typed this up, I was literally sitting across the table from the person with whom I was in that long-distance relationship in college. But at the time, the song spoke to me in a big way. I never owned that limited edition of the album, by the way. Uh, instead, I only own Long Way Back Home on cassette, having taped it onto a mixtape I was uh, when I was at home at one point and had access to my sister's CD collection. I then sought out and found an MP3 on an illegal file... I then sought out and found an MP3 on an illegal file sharing service in the early 1990s. Probably Napster, Audio Galaxy, Kazaa, a number of which probably gave my PC a million computer viruses. And the version I had wasn't the best quality either. But something those of us who are in our 30s and 40s clearly remember are those halcyon days of Napster where you spent the better part of half an hour, and maybe even longer, downloading MP3s, hoping to God nobody would pick up the phone and that you had remembered to disable call waiting when you dialed into AOL. And my first song ever downloaded on Napster was a Counting Crows song I'd heard on WHFS for years and finally got a chance to listen to whenever I wanted. It's Einstein on the Beach. While another Counting Crows song that I finally own, August and Everything After, is one of those true only performed in concert rarities, I didn't pick that one up until Shell sent it to me at some point in the mid-2000s. I then found a cleaner version via YouTube a few years ago and ripped that. But this song started getting played on modern rock radio in 94 after its inclusion on the DGC Rarities compilation. I never owned that CD, but looking at the track listing, I kind of want to see if it's out there for streaming or if I can compile it in a playlist because it's got some really good bands on it. Anyway, according to the song's Wikipedia page, it was recorded in 1991. It would have actually remained buried by the band if not for the record label wanting a song for that particular compilation. 
Adam Duritz gave them this, which they already had. And when the label heard it, they sent it out as a single. It wound up being a legitimate hit and it remains one of my favorite Counting Crows songs. Part of it is the up-tempo rock energy it has. Part of it is because I don't didn't have it on demand for years, so it was really special whenever I heard it or happened to catch it on the radio. Now, I've talked a lot on this episode about how I tended to listen to some groups because I was keeping up with my friends. Funny enough, Counting Crows uh, was not one of those groups. In fact, except for maybe Hootie and the Blowfish, I don't think I knew of a group that most of my friends in high school disliked more than the Counting Crows. And to this day, I'm really not sure why. Maybe it was because Adam Duritz was too whiny. Maybe my friends considered them weak or light. Maybe it was Adam Duritz's hair. I really don't know. And honestly, I didn't care. They were a group I kept up with pretty consistently until maybe the mid to late 2000s. Granted, that's when a lot of my music listening started to fall off anyway, probably because I had other priorities by then, like being a parent, for instance. Besides, you do hit a point sometime in your 30s where you kind of settle into what's definitely your pattern when it comes to popular music, or as Grandpa Simpson says, I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. But one of the better things about growing older with regard to music is not only staying with the bands and artists that were the steady listens of, you know, youth, but rediscovering stuff I'd neglected for years, as well as bands that were popular years ago, but I came very late to. And then actually did start in college because right around the time the spell of fish was wearing off and I was finally digging myself out of that ska hole, I rediscovered Bruce Springsteen. That's Janie Don't You Lose Heart, a Springsteen B-side that was included on disc three of his four-disc box set tracks that was released in 1998. This was a compilation of a massive number of songs that the boss had written during the sessions for various albums, but had never released. Some were played in concert over the years or covered by other artists. Famously, Pink Cadillac, for instance, that's something that Natalie Cole covered in the late 1980s. This song, Janie Don't You Lose Heart, was the B-side to I'm Going Down, and I first heard it on a Springsteen tribute double album called One Step Up, Two Steps Back, The Songs of Bruce Springsteen. The group that covered it was a combination of the duo known as Mrs. Fun and the group Tina and the B-side movement. They did it in sort of an Indigo Girls sort of manner, and a little research into Mrs. Fun shows that they're associated with the Indigo Girls, so that all lines up. It's one of the highlights of that tribute album, and when I 
got the box set, it was one of the first songs I listened to. Personally, I really like it. It's definitely lighter pop in the sense that you would have heard out of, uh, you know, Bruce on Born in the USA, but it's got the heart of songs like Fourth of July, Asbury Park, you know, Sandy. And it's a sweet song, something that you could sometimes forget that Bruce could do between all of the stadium-shaking anthems and serious acoustic pieces he was putting out. That's not the only Springsteen track that I'm putting on my list here. I really did try to limit things to one song per artist, but when it boiled down the Springsteen, I had two songs at the top of the list. Plus, they're very different, because whereas Janie Don't You Lose Heart is a sweet romantic song, this one is a classic bar band rocker. Recorded for The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle in 1973, it's Seaside Bar Song. This was another one I first heard as a cover on that Springsteen tribute album, and that album is one that I recommend tracking down, because not only does it have those two songs, it also features a killer David Bowie cover of It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City. On that tribute album, the song is covered by Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, a band that has legendary status in New Jersey, as they were the longtime house band of the Stone Pony, and one of their most famous members was E Street Band guitarist Stevie Van Zandt. Their cover is awesome, and once I got the box set, I went right for this one as well, which is on disc one of tracks and is pure Bruce energy. It's pretty tight, too. The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle is a great album, but there are a number of songs that go on a little too long. This one clocks in at about three minutes and foreshadows some of the straight-up rockers that we've got on albums like The River. And that's kind of where my taste really solidified as college ended and I headed into my mid into my 20s. With some disposable income on my hands and access to a number of record stores in the greater Washington, D.C. area, I would buy a ton of stuff and would dive headfirst into a love of two bands, The Replacements and The Clarks. I want 
replacements were a group I'd known for at least six or seven years before I bought their compilation All for Nothing, Nothing for All in 2000, which was a two-disc album, the first of which was a greatest hits collection for their Warner Brothers era, everything from Tim to All Shook Down. The second disc, though, was B-sides, outtakes, alternate versions, and covers. And Beer for Breakfast is a bit of a smart-ass, almost novelty type of song, but man, does it sound just like a band that is constantly several drinks in whenever they go on stage which, according to what I've read about the band, is pretty much what they were. I owned a little bit of the Matt's music prior to buying this. Uh, Within Your Reach was on the Say Anything soundtrack. That's one of my favorite tracks on that CD. And I owned Stink, which was the uh, EP that they released between Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash and Hootenanny. Soon after this, I started buying their back catalog, and I have to say they're only one of a handful of bands whose entire catalog I will listen through in order every once in a while, just to hear the evolution of their sound. This song has that bar band, garage band feel, as it sounds like a few punk kids fucking around while learning to play. I can't recommend their music enough, especially uh, Let It Be, Tim, and Please To Meet Me. Those three albums for me are like and probably for, I'm not the only one who has this opinion, by the way, I'm sure. But those three albums to me are like peak replacements. Now, the Clarks, who actually covered I Will Dare in, in concert when I saw them once, they're a band out of the Pittsburgh area that Amanda's friend introduced us to in 2001 when she invited us to come along and see them at this uh, like incredibly small music club in Arlington named Iota. I don't even know if it's, a, it's around anymore. It might not be. Anyway... This was one of those times when I didn't know much from a band, but was so blown away that I couldn't get enough of them. Their albums weren't that easy to come by since they were more or less a regional band and largely independent. Amanda gave me a copy of their 1998 album, Let It Go, soon after that show, and we kept up with them for a few years after that, seeing them live a few times at various venues in the D.C. area. In 2001, they released an outtakes album called Strikes and Gutters, and this song, Apartment Song, was a track on their first live album from about 97 or so. The studio version was featured on that compilation. What I've always loved about the band is the way they're a pretty no-frills rock band. They delve into some more pop-type stuff every once in a while, and even veer into alt-country, but for the most part, they line up with Springsteen and later-era replacements and other bands that sound like they've been grinding out gig after gig in any venue that would take them, from shitty dive bars to clubs and theaters. Apartment Song is one of a number of relationship songs they have, many of which are actual breakup songs or getting over the girl songs. This one is 
kind of in that realm as well, as it quotes the saying, bottle of wine, loaf of bread, and a pound of salt, which are gifts for a new home. Bread that this house may never grow hunger, they say. Salt that life may always have flavor, and wine that joy and prosperity may reign forever. Yet it kind of sounds like something went wrong, or he's reflecting on something in the past. Toward the end of the song, there's this line, walking up the stairs to the second door, we're going to leave our ghost on the polished hardwood floor, which is one of my favorite lines in the song. And honestly, it was tough to choose just one Clark song. Um, I've listened to their music a lot over the years, and there are a number of songs that make it to my regular rotation. It makes me kind of miss those days when I had the time to head to a show that was 10 or 20 bucks a ticket, and I could either cab it or take the metro and didn't have to worry about parking or getting up to actually be responsible the next day. Okay, I had to do that because I was gainfully employed in the early 2000s, but I guess back then I had more of a tolerance for the conditions of places like the 930 Club than I would at, say, now at 43. The Clarks are still around and they're still making records, although I don't know if they ever tour much beyond the general Pittsburgh area. Putting them here on the list, which is second to last, does give me a way to help wrap things up and segues into my last song, because they're indirectly responsible for my discovering it. I say indirectly, because the last time I ever saw the Clarkson concert, which was a couple of months before we left Arlington for Charlottesville in 2004, Mark Broussard was the opening act. We enjoyed his music so much that we bought his first album, and then in 2005, he found his way to Charlottesville with two opening acts, country rock artist Will Hogue and a solo piano-playing singer-songwriter named Sarah Bareilles. Prior to the show, I looked up music by both of them, and at that point, Sarah Bareilles had only her independently released album available. Little Voice and Love Song were at least a year away. Some of the songs were available for streaming and download on our website, and I grabbed a couple among them before I knew better. a drawer finer pieces of you in my dreams and in the It's a live track that I don't think has ever actually been put out on an album or as a B-side. I don't remember if she actually performed it when I saw her back in 2005. Nevertheless, it's one that stuck with me, and I remember putting it on a mix CD that I made for a couple of my high school friends when our 10th year after graduating rolled around. It's kind of a great note to end this episode on, too, because it's a song about the folly of your youth. 
a time when you had no experience to go by and were probably in a relationship or two that was never going to work because you had no idea what the hell you were doing. And I have to admit that I'm not sure that B-sides actually exist anymore, at least as we knew them. CDs are still there, but singles are mostly associated with downloads and streaming more than, than sales of actual CD singles. I know that vinyl has made a huge comeback, but I'm not sure that the 45 has made a comeback as much as the 33 has. Then again, there are still remixes and alternate versions that are out there of current pop songs. There are a number of artists who do one-off singles or EPs that back in the day would have qualified for that rarity potential. But the accessibility via the internet has made it much easier to find all of this stuff. And what's really cool about that is there's so much to discover. And that'll do it for this episode. Next time around, I'm going back 30 years, staying in my youth. I'm going back exactly 30 years to 1991. That is when a particular Douglas Copeland novel came out. I'm going to be talking about that novel because it gave a label or a name to Generation X. I'm going to be talking about the novel as well as the generation and the idea behind the generation, kind of the sociology that went into what Generation X was supposedly going to be or was. And in February, I'll also have the next episode of Fallen Walls Open Curtains. Um, that's when Andy Leyland is going to join me to talk about James Bond. Until then, don't forget to send me feedback via email, Twitter, or Facebook. And to take us out, I'm going to play another Springsteen song. Uh, this one was a live-only track until he and the E Street Band eventually recorded it in the studio for the 2012 al album Wrecking Ball. I really prefer the live one because I've been hearing it for years since it was released on the 2001 Live in New York City album. It's called Land of Hope and Dreams, and I hope you enjoy it. As always, thanks for listening, and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. 
For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.